Okay, so this morning we are um, we are halfway through. This is it. After that, we'll be halfway through um, Ephesians. We are going to see called one. Um, we're going to wait through a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And so this morning, um, Paul's going to do something that he does a lot. It's weird talking about Paul because my name's Paul. But anyway, y'all know like when we do the growth guys and I put things like Paul said and it's really, really brilliant, I'm talking about the Bible Paul. Right? You know that. I don't have that kind of wisdom. So, uh, But Paul's writing this letter. He does this a lot. So if you've um, read Romans or even heard of Romans, anytime you read a book that he writes, he'll do this. The first part of that book is all like doctrine and theory and kind of, you know, like calculus. Right? It's easy to get a little bit lost. And then at some point he makes a turn. And he says, okay, so like we've talked about all that stuff. And now that we talk about all that stuff, here's kind of what it should look like in your life. Okay? And that's the part that we always love and or hate. We love it if we're doing it. We hate it if we're not. We really love it if we're doing it and our spouse isn't. Right? And we're like, maybe I'm better than you are. So that's what's happening today. Paul's wrapping up the whole like it's been doctored to this point. You know, here's what we've talked about to this point, and it's great, it sounds fantastic. And now he's gonna make a turn. So, you know, next week when you come back, we'll be in chapter four, like chapters four, five, and six are all kind of Paul being in your face and like, you know, hey, if you really are this, then this is how it should look. So he's gonna kind of we're gonna shift into like this little kick your butt mode. Can you say that? I just did. And, and today is the end of one part, and next week's the beginning of the other. So let me do this. We're just going to recap kind of what we've, what we've learned um, to this point. This is, before you check out, this is nothing different than what you do. Okay? We live our lives this way, whether you love Jesus or not. You say what you want, and then you figure out how you get there. Okay? So Paul has said, this is what we are, this is what we want, this is what we want to see in our lives, and now we're talking about how to get there. Here's what we've learned to this point. First, Everything is in Christ. Our identities, our needs, our desires are all perfectly met in a relationship with Jesus, which is why the very first time we talked about Ephesians, at the very beginning, we said it's all about being in Christ. You've got to choose Jesus. Second, we've been selected by the Father, set free, free by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. That's all because of grace. Then we learn this. It leads to a full life. One that's thankful for what God has done, prayerful about what God's doing. Then we learn this. In the process of that, we're being transformed. That was when we showed this, the clips of The Biggest Loser. Which means that who we are is greater than who we were. That's good news. But the better news is who we're becoming is going to be greater than who we are. So we're always in a process of being transformed. Um, Ephesians 2.10 says that you and I are masterpieces. God has created us. We're His workmanship. Which means we love that about us, but it also means the person you're sitting next to right now is a masterpiece in progress. So all of us are going to be a chisel. We're all going to be made and to be this masterpiece for God. And then fifth, we learn this, that God knows that there are walls that keep us from experiencing the transformations in one another. We talked about the dividing wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. And how Christ was the original wrecking ball way before Miley Cyrus, and he tore that wall down. Sorry for the bad no image. And then last week we did this. We talked about um, Paul kind of, he started to kind of turn from doctrine to practical. Um, he started talking about how the salvation of very different people come together to make one family. And what he said was, this is a mystery, right? We talked about that last, last week, that when your friends look at you 
And they see how you're changing, and then they see you on your days when you're not really changing, and they go, Jesus loves you? That's a mystery. Like, how does that work out? And, and we are the example. We talked about last week the parentheses. And he said, look, you're the example to the world of what my grace looks like. You're the example when they say, hey, how, how do people that are different actually get along? He wants to say, look at the gathering. That's what we talked about last week. Now, if you're like the people that Paul wrote to, here's the difference between us and them. We get to digest this six, seven, eight weeks at a time. They were sitting where you're sitting. Well, not where you're sitting, but like you're sitting. And they were hearing the letter being read to them. And right about now, they've heard all of this stuff that we just recapped. And here's what they're thinking. That sounds great. But it's not working. Because I'm not living up to that standard. And I don't think my spouse is living up to that standard. And I know my kids aren't. I want to. But there's something about all that that's just not kind of correlating to my life. That's where we are today. And so here's what Paul does. He prays. He stops writing. He stops preaching. And he just prays. He prays for the Ephesians. And so what we're going to learn today is this. We're going to talk about what he prayed. It's going to sound really pastoral, okay? We're talking about the content of his prayer, and we're going to talk about the context of his prayer. And that's just really fancy preacher talk for this is what he prayed, and here's kind of why he prayed. Okay? And then we're going to actually, at the end, we're going to, guess what we're going to do? Pray. That's so good. You already got this. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Let's read it, and then we'll just kind of take a look at the content and the context. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Here's what he says. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do more, to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Good stuff. So that's a prayer. Paul prays it, and here's what he's talking about. Here's the, here's the content. Of Paul's prayer. Um, I put in my notes that Paul's like an onion. That's a weird thing to say to somebody, right? You're like an onion. It's not really about how he smells. It's not even that he makes us cry. But it's kind of like, with Paul, there's nothing ever simple, right? So like, he wants to make a simple statement, but he makes all these other statements that go with the simple statement. So you kind of peel it away layer by layer. And that's kind of what we're going to do right here. Paul, he actually prays one prayer, but it's just one long sentence. And it's one prayer, but there's a lot of mini prayers that kind of go with it. So we're going to break this down in a couple of ways. One, we're talking about the small prayers that Paul prayed. You'll see them up on the screen. And then we're talking about the one big prayer that Paul's praying. He prays small prayers to get to a big prayer. So here's the first small prayer. Verse 16, Paul prayed for his followers to have strength. He prayed the followers of Jesus in Ephesus would have strength. He prays, God, give us strength and power. And look where God gives us strength and power from. From his glorious 
riches. Like, if you came up to me and said, um, I need 20 bucks, and I pull my wallet out, I might look and say, wow, 20 bucks is all I got. can't give you 20, but I'll give you a, a dollar. God gives us out of his endless riches. Like, we can never say to God, I need, and he's never going to pull his wallet out and go, I'm sorry. He never runs out. Here's what that means. You and I can, we never have to be afraid to ask God for strength. Never be afraid to say, God, I need more strength. Because he never runs out. He is rich and he gives richly. The second thing that he prayed, small prayer. He prayed that they would have the presence of Jesus. Verse 17. <coughs> so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, more specifically, he prayed that Jesus would move into their homes instead of just visit their homes. The word that Paul uses, dwell, means to settle, to inhabit. How many of you have um, relatives that visit from time to time? Go ahead and raise your hand and be proud. Are you glad when they leave? Depends on the relative, right? <laughs> so that relative we're like, we like it, why don't you just move in with us? And sometimes we have relatives, they come and five minutes into the visit, we're like, mm, don't you need to be somewhere like for the rest of your life? See ya. Paul's praying here, listen, God, I want, I want people in Ephesians to have the, the dwelling presence of Jesus. We don't want Jesus to just come to the house, unpack a few bags, hang out for a little bit, pack it back up and leave. That's the Sunday experience, and then Monday through Saturday, Jesus knows we're with us, and then we invite him to visit again on Sunday, right? What Paul's praying for them is this, look, God, we want Christ to dwell with them. What, what would your life look like? If Jesus moved in, would it change? If we didn't think of him as a visitor, but as a member, somebody who lives in our home, who actually doesn't just live in the home, but can go look in any closet in the home. Ugh. We should just move on, right? Yeah. Like with Jesus, we, would, we want to get to the place with Jesus where he says stuff like this, oh, you can use the bathroom, but not that one. <laughs> right? Don't look at the mess in cabinet. Jesus wants to dwell with us. And Paul prayed that Jesus wouldn't just visit, that he would have a home with us. Here's a third small prayer that he prayed. Paul prayed for us to have power. Verse 18, he said that we would have power. Here's a little bit more brief. The word for power here, it means to have full strength. It's one thing to want something, it's another to be able to get it. Um, I love the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. I don't know if you ever saw that or not, but Ron White, hilarious. I know he doesn't love Jesus, but he's hilarious. Um, and he, he talks in there it's a little bit about drinking and driving and getting pulled over by the cop. And the policeman walks up to him and he says, you have the right to remain silent. And Ron's big line is, I had the right, I didn't have the ability. Sometimes we have the right to do things. We don't have the ability. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's like, you know what, as Christians, all the things that we've talked about from chapter 1 all the way through this chapter, all the great things that we've said, how God's transforming us, you've got a lot of rights, but if you don't have the ability, what good is it? So God doesn't just give us rights, He gives us power. And Paul prays that, that they would have power, full strength, full steam ahead to get done what I want to do in their lives. I don't know about you, but I need that. I'm doing T25 with Parker. And 
we have to do like these plank things and then stick your butt up in the air and like go back down and walk over to the right. And like at some point your shoulders are just like they're burning. And what I'm thinking is I wouldn't give anything for full strength. Because I don't think I have full strength anymore. To have real power. Well, what a miserable life it would be if as Christians we were called to do things and we had no power to get it done. Wouldn't that be awful? It's like working for a boss who asks you to do the impossible. Oh, wait, you already do that, right? And they expect it. And when it doesn't happen, they're, not, they're mad at you, and you're just like, but I had no shot at getting that done. Like, that thing was going to cost so much money, and you gave me 50 bucks. There's no way I could have pulled that off. What I want you to know is this. God's not like that. Thank goodness. He doesn't call us to things and then not give us the ability to do it. So Paul prayed that they would have power. Three small prayers for strength. He prayed that they would have the presence of Jesus. He prayed that they would have power. And, and here's what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. Knowing that they're a little bit overwhelmed but what they've heard since the letter began to be read to them. He prays for these small things. They're just the layers. Because what he's really praying for is found in verse 18. It's the one prayer. The one big prayer. He says this, that they may have power together with all the saints to do something. And so here's the prayer. He prayed that they would have power to grasp. To grasp what? The love of God. You think about that. you got one prayer to pray. You've taught all this huge doctrinal stuff. You know, we're, all these, we're being transformed, we're being changed, you've been transformed, you've been selected by God, you've been sealed with the Spirit, all these lofty ideas, and they're sitting there going, what in the world, how do I do that? And he could do a lot of things in this moment, couldn't he? Like, like if you're a type A person, you're already making your to-do list, get up 30 minutes earlier, read the Bible 30 minutes longer, pray six hours a day, tell everybody I meet about Jesus, even if it's in Walmart. He didn't do that. He said, you know what? I know that you're overwhelmed. I totally get that you're freaking out right now because you're not measuring up to what I just told you Jesus is doing in your life. And so I'm going to pray one prayer for you. And here's the prayer I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that you really, really, really know the love of God. Do what? That's your prayer? That I know the love of God? And then, Paul, how's that going to help me again? It's not about knowing in your head. This is about a relationship and an experience. This is a word in the Greek of intimacy. To know someone means that you really you know that person. I don't know any other way to say it. Don't want to be too graphic. But this is the difference between sex with a prostitute and intimacy with your spouse. He doesn't want you just to know Him. He wants you to know Him. To know. Like people say, down deep in your knower. The love of God. A lot of us will know it. But to know it. That's what He prayed for. He didn't pray that they would have power and strength to do something. He prayed that they would have power and strength to know someone. His name is Jesus. That they would be filled to overflowing with the love of God. And that's a fantastic prayer. I mean, like, if we just pray that right now, that's a great prayer. 
But what makes it such a great prayer is not the content, but it's the context. And so let's talk about the context of this prayer. Not so much when or how, but where. Where do we know the love of God? First, verse 14, it happens in the context of friction. Mm, we hate that word, right? Friction. It's that thing you feel when you lay in the bed next to your spouse and the six inches between you is like six miles. That's friction. Okay? We all know what that feels like? Yeah. He prays this in the context of friction. Verse 14, for this reason, for what reason? What was the reason he prayed all this? Everything we've learned to this point. Like if anybody knew the church in Ephesians, it was Paul. And the church in Ephesus, it was Paul. And here's why. He planted this church. He started this church. He was the pastor of this church. And so he's teaching them all this stuff. He's teaching about how the dividing wall is gone. Now he's taking two very different people, people that hate each other, and he's making them into one body. And so Paul is well aware of what? Friction. And he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Can I just tell you this? When there's friction, it's a pretty good time to pray. Like when you have friction in your marriage, I'm not trying to make people that aren't married feel bad. Just, I am married. I've read about this. It's never happened in our family. Just read about it. I use enough examples from my marriage that if you're single, you're probably like, I'm single, I'm staying single, right? But when there's friction in your marriage, sometimes what we do is we try to talk that out. We try to reason that out. We make the person who needs to get five minutes to clear their head sit there while we tell them all that they did wrong. But Paul says, you know what? For this reason, I'm not going to do all that. I'm going to kneel before my Father. Maybe if we made prayer a first response instead of a last resort, we would see different results. For this reason. For the reason that you're not quite living up to, nor am I, all that we just talked about. And how overwhelming that can feel. And how, how much you can know that you're not supposed to hate that person and still go, hey, but you're a Gentile. Ugh. Friction. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. So it happens in the context of friction, which should make us feel good, right? Because there's friction sometimes. It's not a bad thing. It's just like a normal thing. People in the room. And it happens in the context of family. Verse 15. He said, he prays to the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Um, please never forget this. That what you're sitting in this morning is a family. It's, it's a family. Sometimes, if we're honest, like church can feel kind of like a business. There's certain things that have to happen a certain way. It's like when you wake up on Saturday at home and your kids are pretty sure they're going to spend the whole day in front of the TV playing video games and you blow that all away by saying, Today, we're going to clean up the yard. We're going to pick up sticks. We're going to mow the grass. We're going to shovel the snow, whatever. And you make this to-do list, and here's what they'll say. This doesn't sound like fun. Yeah, no, we're a family, right? So like, sometimes you got responsibilities. We've got to get these things done. Sometimes that happens in church too, right? 
there's certain roles, there's certain things that need to get done, and sometimes it doesn't feel like, well, it doesn't feel like we're having a movie night now. I want the popcorn and the Coke. Yeah, but that's coming. But even in all that, never lose sight of this. You and I are family. That's a good thing. It means that we all have the same Father. It means that when He prays, He's praying in the context of a family. There are lots of clubs, there are lots of businesses, and there are a lot of places that do really good things. But here's the thing about the church. We are the only organization on the face of the planet that carries the message of redemption in Christ. Like the Rotary Club is awesome. You get to eat there. But they don't talk about Jesus there. The Running Club is a great family. They, they love each other. They take care of each other. They call each other. But they run together. They don't exist to tell people about Jesus. They exist to help people live longer so they don't have to die and face eternity without Jesus. But somebody's got to step in and have a mission to tell people about Jesus. And guess who that somebody is? It's the person you're sitting next to. If they love Jesus, they're part of an organization that carries the message of redemption. We're the only organization that does that. Never forget that we are the family of God. And God is like the dad who can't get enough. Right? He's like, I don't know if y'all ever looked at your wife and said, I want five more. <laughs> Try that sometime. <laughs> See how that goes for you. She'll be like, five more puppies. <laughs> five more pieces of chocolate. <laughs> you know. Nah, man. At some point, we reach our limit. Is that fair to say? We're like, checkbook won't carry us anymore. I can't get a fourth job. We're done having kids. Your heavenly father's not like that. He's never done. He wants them all. He wants them all. And we, as his children, get to tell people that. We get to invite people into the family all the time. We're not inviting them into a place where they have to pay their dues. We're inviting them to a family where they are loved and accepted and no longer alone. Family means that we have freedom to become who we will be. It means that we have freedom to grow. It means that we have freedom to be two years old if we're two years old, while we're becoming three and then four and then eventually we're driving a car. It means that we have a father. And it also means this, that it's never enough to just love him. I want to say that again. It's never enough to just love God. That would be like, not that Will would ever do this because Will's an awesome kid. But that would be like Will coming to me and saying, hey dad, I love you. I, and you know what? I wrote a mission statement for my life. Can I read it to you? Sure, go ahead. Is it about the Xbox? Said, no, listen. My mission statement. To love you with all my heart and no one else. Um, Will, it's good. You know that you've got a brother and a sister, right? Yeah, yeah, but I don't need them. Will, you know that I love your brother and sister, right? Yeah, but it's just me and you. It's just me and you. we got a good thing going on, man. It's just me and you. Now, you're in a family. 
You're in a family. It's not enough to just love God. When you're in a family of a bunch of kids that your father also loves. And Paul writes it in that context. And you're going to see this as we go along. That nothing that he's talking about, loving God more and experiencing God and knowing God intimately, doesn't happen with just you and God. Because there's a family. He prays it in the context of friction, in the context of family, and finally he prays it in the context of a foundation. Verse 17, Paul talks about being rooted and established. These are um, an agricultural term, rooted, and an architectural term, established. They both kind of carry the same idea. It's like these deep roots, this strong foundation. There is depth involved here. What blows my mind is this. He prays all of that because all of that needs to be in place to fully understand the love of God. I know you didn't get that. Let me try again. All of this has to be in place to fully grasp the love of God. So Paul says, I pray that you, together with all the saints, will grasp, will know, will intimately, awkwardly know the love of God. You can't know the love of God if you're not together with all the saints. Are you seeing that? That's blowing my mind. Because when I was youth pastoring, it was really cool to say things like this, I love God, but I hate church. I mean, like, whole churches made that their slogan. We love God, we hate church. It was really freeing. Like, if somebody, you ever play, um, you ever play a game that's a trump card? So you play, like, your high eight, and you're like, kill it. And somebody plays, like, the, the two of the trump card. Just took my high eights with the trump card. The trump card forever in the church was this. I don't need to be in church. I got a good thing going with Jesus. What, what, what this passage is saying is this. You can't have a good thing with Jesus without this. You can't. It's not possible. And that's why Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. Because he knows that the next chapter he starts to write is going to take him down a road where he's going to start being practical about how one another things work out in the church. In that church specifically. In other churches as well. And that that's going to be how we begin to understand the love of God. It's the context of the church that we really start to grasp the power of God's love. Verse 19 says this. We're finishing this up. To know that this love, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Basically, it means this, just to be filled over. So, you, we can all be filled to a point with God, right? We could all want to retreat, just me and God, for the next five years, read the Bible, and guess what will happen? I'll be a lot closer to God. I will to a point be full of God. But how do you get full to overflowing with the love of God? 
You see that work out in the context of this, of, of friction. Iron sharpens iron, makes each one stronger. Of a family where, wow, not only does God love me, but man, He loves you. And sometimes, like, I like to learn my lessons through you. Because you did horrible, and He still loves you. Wow, what great love the Father has for us. We learn that through the context of a family. So, here's what it means this morning, the big idea. Hopefully this will make sense. To really know the Father's love, get to know the Father's family. To really know the Father's love, get to know the Father's family. Like, get to know each other's story. Like, take somebody out to coffee and ask them, what's your story? And you'll be blown away. Like, we're doing real marriage on Sunday nights. And I know John's here. It's good to have you here because he had major back surgery. He's in church. It's fantastic. It's good to see you. We're sitting at real marriage. Yeah. You, right, that's a good thing. Like, we're sitting at real marriage a couple weeks ago. And everyone's kind of, you know, you listen to some teaching and then you kind of talk a little bit and kind of share your story. And I, I told John and Brandy, every time I'm around them, I'm just, I love them more. Because they'll start talking and they'll say things like, oh, you know, whatever, it's kind of no big deal. And just like, wait, wait, say that part again? And they start telling their story about when they got married. And everybody that's in the class of my tennis, you can ask him. Every time, everybody in the, in the, the room is just kind of like, you did what? He's going to step back and go, man, that's the love of God. And there's a depth to the love of God that I have now. A little bit more understanding. All because three weeks ago I sat right there and heard their story. That's how this works. And so what I'm saying, I want to be very, very clear. You can try to understand the love of God on your own. And for those of you that are like me, you know, kind of like, freak out around other people sometimes. You'd rather kind of be alone on an island with some books. I like that. But I can only get to know the love of God so far like that. The way to really understand the love of God is to get to know His family. And to start to hear the stories. Take Randy out sometime. Ask him about being sober. Ask him about his journey. Take, take Tim out. And ask him about the world race. About being so captured by the mission of God that he wants to go and tell the world about it. Just, just learn some stories. And you'll begin to appreciate. Think about it. Justin works like, what do you work like, 500 hours a week at Bojangles, right? And if you ask him, how's Bojangles going? He'll say, it's going good. I'm telling people about Jesus. I'm there. Might as well. Get to know people's stories and suddenly you start to get a better appreciation for the love of God. And that's what Paul's saying here. I pray that you being rooted together, just like a tree throws its roots down and the tree that's next to it throws its roots down and somewhere below the ground while they look like two trees up here, down here somewhere it's just all big mangled whatever. That's the picture. And there's something about knowing each other that helps us know God more. Take a chance at some horizontal relationships. See God's grace in our lives. We give you a greater appreciation for the loving Father that He is.
I will say this without going into a lot of detail. As a son, I always had a greater appreciation for my dad when I saw how he treated his children at their worst. You can't know that if you're not rooted together and established. Is it easy? Absolutely not. It will definitely push us to our limits, but the results, and I love this, are not up to us. So the last two verses, Paul kind of finishes with his benediction. If you were raised Methodist like I was, this is the part where the pastor stands up with his dress, broke, and he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace and be gracious unto you. He says this thing. And this is what Paul does. He kind of gives this little benediction. It's closing to his prayer. And basically what God, what he's going to say right here is this. Look, there's something about this message, about kind of breaking out, getting to know one another, that is a little still overwhelming, right? Because we're like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't know if I've got it in me to pull this stuff off. I don't know if I've got it in me to really root myself together with other believers. They, they might see me at my worst. I don't know if I want that. I'm not able to do this. And he finishes with two verses that says, even if you're not able, the God that we serve isn't just able, He is more than able to accomplish this. I, when we're the example in the parentheses to the world of what it means to be unified and one and rooted together and growing together, they'll say, how'd you pull that off? And you'll say, my pastor preached this message one time and it was amazing. It was the best sermon I'd ever heard on, on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. No one's ever preached it better than him and no one ever will. He is amazing. Is that what you're saying? Oh no, let me wake up and see. No. What you're going to say is, I don't know. It was God. Because only God can pull that off. Now to Him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory. Where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Here's what that says to me. In the end, when God has pulled all of this off, we will stand knowing each other and knowing His love even more, having a full grasp on it, not just in our heads, but also in our hearts. And here's what's going to happen. The glory that God will get from that will never end. Never ends. Practical. Here's what that looks like. It looks like the church loving the church. It looks like community group leaders at the hospital with people in their community. It looks like not one man doing it all. But all 
Holy Son. That's what it looks like. Roots coming out everywhere. When I youth pastored, and I had youth workers that helped me love kids, we would always ask the kids to write notes to their youth workers. And one time we had a youth worker meeting, and my youth worker walked in, and she looked really funny. Like, her face was like, and I said, what's wrong? She goes, I don't know. I got this letter from one of my kids, and I don't know what to do with it. I'm expecting, like, you know, I'm a drug dealer, and been selling crack down the street. Well, read it to me. She said, it started like this, Dear Vicky, I like you more than Paul. <laughs> she was like, Is it? I'm sorry. And I said, gosh, I'm not. Like, that's kind of how it's supposed to be. She's supposed to like you better than me. Because you're supposed to be more involved in her life than I am. If she's waiting on me, she's in trouble. Because there's a hundred kids. You got ten and she's one of them. I'm so glad you got that note. It's not any different now that we're adults, right? Together, rooted, established. People involved in people's lives. He prayed for that. It's not about when does Paul come. It's about when does Jesus show up. And Jesus shows up through you and you and you and everybody else. But I didn't want to do the you, 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 you thing. That's how it works. And when that happens, nobody can take the credit. Nobody gets the glory. I don't ever get to stand up in front of the gathering and say, see what I have done. Because I didn't do squat. Jesus did. Jesus builds his church. And that's the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And that's what we're going to do this morning. That's how we're going to close this morning. We're just going to close it by the band's going to come back over. We're going to sing a couple songs and we're just going to pray for one another. I'm going to push you, push you out of your comfort zone. I'm going to ask you to pray for one another. To just pray what Paul prayed. That we would know, really know, the love of God. That we would grasp how much He loves us. How high and wide and deep and long the love of God is. Which is great news. Because it means we can never get away from it. His love never fails. Never gives up. Never runs out on me. If you want to know the Father's love, get to know the Father's love.